St. James Lutheran Church. We're glad that you're here. And um, got a few announcements before we start. First of all, um, we are planning on uh, reopening here sometime soon. Uh, you should have received an email this week or a letter in the mail with a survey in it uh, to fill out. It has questions about what your preferences are, or what your concerns are about reopening. Uh, please uh, send those back in as soon as possible if you haven't already. If you didn't get one of those but you'd like to fill that out, Uh, please email me and let me know, and I'll send you a copy of that survey. And what we're going to do is, we're not exactly sure of the details yet, uh, hence the survey. Uh, We'll be able to give you uh, the plan uh, next Sunday. The plan, uh, uh, what we have so far is that we are going to worship in person, uh, but it is going to be in an amount of people that is safe uh, to worship in the building. But we also will do it in a way that everybody who wants to come and worship in person will be able to. In addition, uh, we also are going to continue the live stream because uh, many of you can't come or shouldn't come uh, for uh, different reasons. And we are also going to continue the Zoom Bible studies on Sunday morning and on Wednesday evening too. So the in-person services will be in addition to everything uh, we're doing now. Uh, Speaking of the Zoom Bible studies, if you'd like to participate this morning, Uh, At 10.30, we're going to be working through some of the key texts that have to do uh, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Please send me a request if you're not on the list. If you are on the list, you should have received an email already this morning. I was getting some feedback this week from some people who uh, the email that I'm sending out with the Zoom request is getting kicked to their spam. So if you didn't get it, uh, check your uh, spam folder and see if it's in there. And as always, uh, send me a text or an email if you want to be included in that as well. Uh, Same for Wednesday nights. All right, let's begin worship. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want you to be our God and we want to be your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart that we might manifest your love in the keeping of your commandments and the living of your gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers in the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sins. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Amen. The psalm reading for this morning is the first ten verses of Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee from before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Acts reading this morning is uh, from Acts 1, and it's the story about the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot after Judas' rebellion and suicide. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, 
James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Achaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Gospel reading is from John chapter 17. It's part of this long extended prayer of Jesus to his Father. And in this text that we're going to read this morning, Jesus is praying for me and you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. And now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, And have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one.
epistle reading for this morning, which is also the sermon text, is Romans 6, 1 through 4. We finished Romans 5 last week, and let's pick up at the uh, great Romans 6 of this Sunday. What shall we say then, Paul asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this text starts off with, what shall we say then? This question Paul asks. And of course, when he asks that question, it forces you to go back to chapter 5 to find out what's he referring to. What shall we say then? means that there's something to say in response to what he's just said in Romans chapter 5. And we've spent the past few weeks in Romans 5, 12 through 21. So let me just sort of rehash what's going on there so we can get the background for the question that he's asking. So first of all, there's two ways of being human. Paul lays out in Romans 5, 12 through 21. There's being in Adam or there's being in Christ. Do you remember this is that in Adam is natural, in Christ is supernatural. You're in Adam automatically just by virtue of being born into a fallen human race. In Christ, though, is supernatural. It comes from outside of us and it changes and transforms us. Now remember, this is, this, this is super key to understanding what Paul's doing in Romans 6, and we'll talk about this a little bit more this morning. It's all about ruling and reigning. Remember, five out of the nine times that Paul uses the verb for rule are in Romans 5, out of all of his letters, can be found in Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's all about ruling and reigning. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the master? Is it going to be sin, along with death, unrighteousness? Or is it going to be Jesus, along with grace and righteousness and life, and even, as we saw, us in Christ ruling and reigning? That's the question. Are you going to be a slave? Or are you going to rule and reign with Jesus? What shall we say then? Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's going to answer the question that that section raises. Ultimately, um, at the end of that section, he says, Jesus guaranteed he's going to rule and reign. He's not going to lose. Because however strong the kingdom of sin is, the kingdom of grace is far stronger. Remember he said this line, wherever sin abounds, grace superabounds. Sin, there's no way that sin can ever conquer, conquer the kingdom of Christ because grace is so much stronger than sin. And so it's a natural question that can be raised. Well, if that's true, however much sin is, grace will over superabound it. Grace will overflow and cover up sin. If that's the case then, why can't we continue in sin to make that grace? That means that sin is good in some way, right? Because sin causes grace to happen. I wouldn't experience grace if I wasn't a sinner, why can't I just sin as much as I want so that grace will abound? Let me say real quick here as a side note that y'all, we should be having, you should be developing in your own vocabulary an elevator conversation about the heart of Christianity. Like a two-minute conversation that you can have with somebody to explain what a Christian is. Now you might say, well, I can't actually convince somebody to become a Christian in two minutes. Uh, That's true, of course. You can't convince somebody to become a Christian in two lifetimes of explaining Christianity. The job isn't to convince somebody to become a Christian. The job is just to be able to explain 
in simple, concise terms what it is that you believe. If your elevator explanation of Christianity isn't open to the charge here in verse 1, are you telling me that however much I sin, God can forgive that sin? Then you're not really explaining the gospel. This is right at the heart of Christianity, is that grace superabounds whenever sin abounds. It can't be conquered. We should always be open to the charge that we're offering people, we're offering ourselves the right to sin as much as we want so that grace can cover it. Now, of course, this is not true. This is not what the gospel says. It should be open to that charge when simply understood, but it's not what the gospel says. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, by no means, like no way. That's what the Greek says. It's super strong language. No way. That's not, that's, it's not even on the radar screen. Nobody should be thinking like that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, that's, that's a little bit easily misunderstood. How can we continue in sin so that grace w- w- would abound? It's not even possible because don't you know that if you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus' death. Now before we start to talk about how this problem of sinning so much that grace can abound, how that problem can be solved by being dead in baptism, we have to talk for just a few minutes about baptism and what baptism does. And this is going to be super short, super cursory, superficial. We don't have time here to get into a complex conversation about what baptism is and what baptism does, although that would be a worthy subject of a sermon series, and we probably should do that sometime. But just real quick, what Paul's talking about in baptism here, let's discuss it. And one of the reasons why I have to bring this up is because, well, there's actually two reasons. One is that many of you who are watching are either Baptist right now or come from a Baptist tradition, or you're a Lutheran, and maybe you've been a Lutheran your whole life, but you don't really understand the way baptism works in true Christianity, and you've been influenced by Baptist thought. And a lot of you know, maybe some of you don't know, I come from a Baptist background myself. I've been in my lifetime a Baptist pastor. I have nothing but respect for Baptists. And so what I'm about to say is not being critical of Baptists per se, or their Christianity, or their theology in general. But let me just explain what I mean. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Romans, and one of the commentators that I study in depth every week as I prepare for these sermons, is a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of my favorites. He was a British pastor and theologian in the middle part of the last century. And when he talks about Romans 6, here's what he says. He says, this text cannot be talking about water baptism. Remember what we're talking about is what is baptism as a means to answer the question that Paul raises. How shall we continue? Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what he says is that clearly this is not talking about water baptism here. Because this baptism is actually doing something. This baptism is uniting us to Christ. And we know that water baptism could never do that because that would be salvation by works. First of all, let me say this. There's really no reason at all, except for Baptist theology, to think that Paul is not talking about water baptism here. Baptism, whenever it's mentioned in the New Testament is always talking about water baptism. And I know that Jesus talks, or John the Baptist, I should say, talks about the one who's going to come, who's going to baptize you with fire. I know that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's discussed, but it's always linked to water baptism. 
And even if it's not, that means that 98% of the times that baptism is brought up in the New Testament, it's water baptism. We should assume that Paul's talking about water baptism here, unless he goes to the extraordinary lengths to say, I'm not talking about water baptism. But he doesn't do that. The only reason why you would think it's not water baptism is if your theology, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, demands that it can't be baptism. But listen to me very closely. Once your theology, or even your ethics, tells you that what I'm reading in the Bible can't mean what I know it means just by basically reading, then your theology or your ethics is wrong. God's word is allowed to sit in judgment on our theology and on our ethics. I think that this is talking about water baptism. It's just the plain, clear understanding. In addition, and this is a little bit complicated, so just bear with me, and if you don't understand it, shoot me a text later. Raise your hand in the Zoom class coming up. In verse 4, Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In other words, baptism isn't like a spiritualization of union with Christ here. Baptism in verse 4 is the tool that gets us to union with Christ. It can only be a thing that happens to us to bring about union with Christ. And what we know from the rest of the New Testament is that tool is water baptism. So granted that Paul's talking about water baptism here, and again, there's no reason to think he's not talking about it in the text. Let me make the point that Martin Lloyd-Jones, given that caveat, is spot on. Baptism is actually doing something here. By being baptized, we are being connected to the death of Jesus. And we're not going to talk about this this Sunday, but we'll get to it next Sunday. We're also being connected to the resurrection of Jesus by baptism. Well, now... Some of you might be asking, especially those of you who are Baptist, how can water do such great things? And I'm going to quote from Luther's Catechism. Certainly not just water. It's not that just by having some water splashed on your head and a pastor say some, you know, stand there and with a robe on and the people gather together and they have a ceremony. It's not just water that does this. Certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things. Along with the faith which trusts the word of God in the water. See, it's not just water. It's not just that, you know, baptism isn't effective by the work worked, as the reformers would say. It's effective because it's combined with God's word. What do we mean by that? God commanded us to do it. The very end of Matthew, he says, go and baptize all nations. And if God commands it, we should do it. And if he combines the promises of the gospel to it, as he does in Ephesians 5, we should believe it. When God comes to, in other words, what I'm saying is this. Baptism is just like the word of God. The word of God saves us. We hear the word of God preached, we read the Bible, and we're saved by believing in it. Baptism is the same way. By believing the promises of baptism, baptism saves us. The last part of Luther's quote is, it saves those who have faith. Baptism is not a salvation by work. Baptism, like reading the Bible or hearing a sermon from God's word preached, is a means that stirs up faith in our hearts. This is why the language of believing is so strong in Romans 6. Paul insists that we're saved by baptism, but not, it's not just you're baptized and so therefore you're saved, no questions asked. The promises of baptism, as Luther insists, work to faith. Check out all the faith language here. In verse 6 he says, because we've been baptized, we know that our old self has been crucified. Verse 8, if we've been baptized, we believe that we also live with Jesus. Verse 9, we know that Christ 
Baptism works for salvation to those who know and believe the promises of baptism. It's not a salvation by works. Baptism is a gift of God to create faith in our hearts. And that faith in Jesus is what saves us. Okay, it's very cursory. There's way more we can say about baptism. And I'm sure a lot of you have a whole lot more questions. But just hang with me for a few minutes. Because if granted that that's the case about baptism, I think we're now in a position to answer the question, how can we, should we, can we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul's answer is no, because in baptism, we've died to sin. Well, how does baptism kill us? And what does killing us have to do with our sin? There's two answers here. One is large. The first one is large and covers the whole Bible. We're not going to talk about the whole Bible, but it covers the whole Bible, and it's the foundation for the second answer. And the first answer is, baptism here in Romans 6 is the new exodus. Do you guys remember several weeks ago, and I've, I've mentioned it since then too, at the very beginning when I said that one of the things Paul is doing in Romans 5 through 8 is after Romans 1 through 4 where he explains justification, in Romans 5 through 8, he's explaining how justification works through the whole story of the universe. From Adam to the new creation. The past few weeks we've been looking at the story. He starts right in in Romans 5. He starts at the very beginning. Adam and the problem of the primeval rebellion and the sin and the unrighteousness and the death that results. As we go through here, you're going to see that it ends up in Romans chapter 8 at the new creation, at glorification, at Jesus' final victory over sin and unrighteousness and death, his final vindication and the final glorification of those of us who believe in him. So last week we were talking about Adam. How does God in the story of the Bible come up with a solution to solve the problem of sin while maintaining his own righteousness? Right off the bat in Genesis, it's he calls this new people, Israel, to belong to him, a new people from whom is going to come the Messiah. Now we don't talk about Abraham necessarily in Romans chapter 6. He's already done that in Romans 4, which we didn't look at. But he goes to the creation of Israel. The Exodus. Do you remember the first Exodus? The first Exodus, Israel, a slave state, a minority oppressed ethnic group, is liberated by God out into the wilderness where they find themselves stuck between death by drowning, the Red Sea, and death by an army, Pharaoh's army on the other side. And God delivers them by taking them through the drowning route. They walk through the sea, the walls of water stacked up on each side of them. The same water that's about to drown their enemies who come behind them. Such an important part of Jewish identity. This is who we are. We are are the people who've been redeemed from slavery through certain death. That's the first exodus. In fact, Paul calls this a baptism. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, Don't you remember that our fathers, the ones who were uh, at, at that first Passover in Exodus, don't you remember that they were baptized into Moses in the sea? He calls that a baptism because he knows that was death. They were going to die, no questions asked. And God delivered them through that death into life. Now, what's the second baptism? What's the second exodus? Jesus comes along, and you guys know the story. He's going to die on the cross to redeem the world and save us from our sins. Jesus refers to that several times as his baptism. He says in Mark chapter 10, he says to James and John, he says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with, meaning his death? 
He refers to his own death as a baptism. What does it have to do with water? At this point, what he's saying is, is just like the nation of Israel had to pass through death in the Red Sea to be liberated as slaves and to be formed as a new nation, I'm going to do that. What that anticipated, I'm about to do. I'm about to pass through death. I'm about to go through my own baptism. He also, interestingly enough, refers to this in Luke chapter 9 as an exodus. You remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Peter, James, and John are up there and they get to witness Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And before uh, the Father shows up with the cloud and announces, this is my beloved Son, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are discussing, Luke says, his upcoming departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Well, the Greek word behind the word departure there is literally the word exodus. They were discussing his upcoming exodus. What does that mean? It means the same thing that baptism means. What happened to the nation of Israel on that first Passover, that first exodus, that first baptism, passing through death, out of slavery, into liberation, Jesus was about to accomplish. That's the second baptism. That's the second exodus. This will partially answer the question, can we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is no. We're passing from slavery through through the exodus of Jesus, through the baptism of Jesus, which our baptism connects us to. We're passing from slavery to liberation. Does it make any sense? Remember, this whole story is about slavery and liberation. Romans 5, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to rule and reign? Adam, sin, death, unrighteousness, or Jesus, life, righteousness, and you and me. Romans 6 is going to pick up this theme. It's all about liberation from slavery. In verse 7, it says, we've been baptized so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you're looking at the ESV with me right now, you'll see that the heading later on for verses 15 through 23 is slaves to righteousness. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says in verse 15, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey? The whole question is about slavery. What slave was ever liberated and said to his liberator, oh, cool, thanks for liberating me. So what you're telling me is like, I can go back to being a slave anytime I want and you'll come and liberate me? That makes no sense. No slave would ever want to return to slavery. The only way we can ask the question of Romans 6.1 can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is if we think of sin as something fun and enjoyable that unfortunately we have to give up if we're going to be Christians. But I wish we could kind of hold on to it, but I guess I can't do that anymore. Sin isn't something fun and enjoyable that you just have to give up if you're going to be a Christian. Sin is slavery. It wants to dominate you. It wants to control you. And what Jesus is offering in baptism is a new exodus, a new liberation from that bondage. What does this exodus have to do with our death then? Because that's what it says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Why do I have to die to experience this? Yesterday on CNN, this story was uh, the story of Madison Bell. It came out. It's been a story that's been going on for the past week. Started off as sort of, a, unfortunately, a typical story. Madison Bell, teenage girl in Ohio who was missing. Uh, Her mom and her boyfriend, uh, she had told her mom uh, last week sometime, I'm going to go to a tanning salon, and she never made it. Uh, They found her car in a nearby parking lot, and the keys were inside, and her cell phone was inside. 
and her mom and her boyfriend were completely frantic, wondering where she was at, certain that, or at least hoping against hope, that she hadn't been killed. Well, yesterday she showed up. And when she was asked, why did you run away? We don't know all the details behind it. But her, her uh, this is on CNN yesterday, her statement was, I just wanted to start a new life. I wanted to start a new life. Her plan to start a new life was to fake her own death. This is something that happens. I wouldn't say frequently. Sort of a soap opera sort of a thing. But it happens in real life sometimes, right? Alistair Crowley, the famous occultist, British occultist, he is the subject of the Led Zeppelin song, Mr. Crowley, in 1930, faked his own death, faked his suicide by jumping. Uh, Do you know why? Because he was dating this woman whom he had grown bored with and couldn't think, bully though he was, and he was an arrogant bully, he couldn't think of a decent way to get out of that relationship without sending her a note saying, this is not your fault, and then faking with the help of her friend that he jumped to his own death off of a cliff in Lisbon, Portugal. Three weeks later, he's found in Berlin. Why would he fake his own death? Uh, In 1974, John Stonehouse a British member of parliament faked his own death by drowning in Florida. He started several businesses. Uh, the bookkeeping was kind of shady that he was doing at these businesses. He was massively in debt. And the only thing he could think of to get out of that was to fake his own death by drowning. In 2008, Samuel Israel, hedge fund manager, had been convicted of running a Ponzi scheme. He was actually assigned his report to prison date. His uh, Jeep was found parked next to a cliff. And in the dust on the Jeep's hood, he had, in his own fingerprints, was found the words, suicide is painless. A month later, he was found living in an RV with his girlfriend. Why would these guys fake their own deaths? Why would Madison, we don't know why Madison Bell faked her own death because we just don't know her backstory. We do know the backstory of the others. Because of slavery to a relationship they didn't want that they couldn't get out of, slavery to death that they didn't think they could get out of, Slavery to a prison sentence that they couldn't get out of. The only sure and certain way to escape slavery is by dying. That's the only way to lose your old identity and gain your new identity. That's what Jesus is offering us in baptism, a change of identity. By dying, by being connected to Christ in baptism, and by dying, along with Jesus on the cross, Galatians 2.20, we lose our old identity. You can't force a dead slave to do anything. Sin no longer has any power over us. Death no longer has any power over us. More on that next week. Unrighteousness has no more power over us. We've had our old identity taken away. So how can you live in sin any longer when you're dead to it? It's not who you are anymore. You are now in Christ. Coming up next week, we'll talk about what that means positively. If we're in Christ, it means we've died to sin. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we're also alive to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good word in Romans 6. It's not always easy to understand, Paul, but we pray that you would help us as we study Romans 6. Especially this morning, we pray that you would help us grasp this new reality, the reality that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been killed in baptism by faith in Jesus Christ, by being connected to your son Jesus on the cross. We've been killed and we're no longer liable to the demands of sin, to the demands of unrighteousness, to the sting and pain of death. You've given us a new identity. You've killed off our old identity and created us as new humans in Jesus Christ.
And we praise you for that. We pray again as we have been praying the past couple months that you would protect all of us from sickness. Those of us who are sick, that you would give them healing. So many of us are afraid that you would calm our fears, that you would help us trust in you, that you would help us see that the resurrection power of your son is way more powerful than any sickness, than any sin. That where brokenness abounds, your righteousness, your love, your grace superabounds. Be with us as we contemplate uh, reopening a church. We want to be wise. We want to be obedient to the authorities. We want to be loving to our neighbors. God, help us not to make decisions uh, that are foolish and that are damaging to your kingdom. But we also want to gather together. And you've commanded us to. And so be with us as we make this decision. Keep us all safe. Help us to do this wisely in a way that benefits the congregation, that fuels and empowers all of us for mission. Help us to do it for your honor and glory. Be with us throughout the remainder of this day. Be with those of us who are going to come to the Bible study. Open our eyes to the glory of the gifts that you've given us in your Holy Spirit, those tools that you've given us to enable us to serve each other. And we'll give you the praise and honor and glory for everything you're doing in the life of our church, our community, the life of our families, the life of us as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. together our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.